on this episode. And Maria replied, oh, he was Hispanic. His name was Richard Ramirez. When Mark told me this, I was like, are you shitting me, man? (laughs) I've got to know this story. So at this point, I freaked out. I was like, what? And Maria said, yes, Jose knew him. And they would talk when Jose was the security guard at the hotel. everybody and welcome to another episode of no country for old mark and juan i am your host mark pearson and this is my co-host juan smith Ooh, the simple name today all right so everybody thank you for you know joining us today on another episode uh real quick before we get into the show uh you can hit us up find more info on us reach out to us at facebook.com slash podcast you can find us on instagram at no underscore country underscore podcast or on twitter at podcast underscore country or you can email us at no country podcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 346-291-0050 now that that is all out of the way uh last week we told you that you know we were going to do something different and special uh we're going <laughs> to we're going to talk about the notorious serial killer Richard Ramirez. And however, since there are literally dozens, if not probably like a hundred of other podcasts who have already done episodes on him, we're going to do it a little bit differently. Uh, the first half of this episode, we're going to give you some background on Ramirez and his crimes, just kind of like a refresher. So if you don't know a single thing about him, you can get an understanding of who this guy was and how much of a monster he really was. Uh, The second half is going to be a previously untold account of someone's encounter with Richard Ramirez. So keep on listening. I promise you it's going to be worth it. And then before we get into it, uh, we're not journalists. So, you know, keep your expectations low, as Juan has said before on the podcast. (laughs) It's always best to start at the bottom. (laughs) We're just podcasters and we're just, you know, finding the silver lining in things. And I'm pretty sure you can find some silver linings and, you know, you know, this story, because, you know, we didn't know the guy, thankfully. It's crazy. And what a uh, challenge to find a silver lining, but we will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're making it hard on ourselves right now. Uh, I do real research. Um, you know, I don't make this stuff up. I stick to the facts. And, you know, if there's a book or, you know, a video or something, I'm going to give these people credit. I'm not going to say I found this because, you know, other people did the work and they deserve credit for it. And, you know, occasionally we'll give our opinions and we don't mind you, our listeners, sharing your opinions with us if they're different. Uh, You know, I can agree to disagree. So uh, real quick, you know, before we get into this dark thing, uh, Juan, uh, I had this really cool idea. I finally got a soundboard hooked up to the studio so we can do really cool sounds and stuff. And the first sound I made was... The sound of, okay, for those of you who don't know, if you haven't listened, you probably should go back and listen to episode two in there. there, We were talking about dating and Juan and I found this really creepy dude with the like nickname Seahawk on like this sea captain dating website. So that's where the whole Seahawk predator out joke came from. And so kind of keeping in theme with that, uh, he has his own sound now. So anytime something creepy or just, 
you know, weird happens. You're going to hear that. <laughs> no, that's, that's not Juan's mating call. Apart when he finds you. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, if you hear, you know, there'll be some throwbacks and other stuff into the show. Maybe not so much on, you know, this episode. I mean, we're still going to make jokes because, you know, that's what we do. But we're not going to make jokes about the crazy, awful stuff that this guy did. But, you know, actually, one thing you don't do is bring your fucking baby. Don't bring your baby. <laughs> not to this one. So for our listener out there who lets the baby listen to this, don't don't bring the baby. She doesn't need to hear this, even if she is still, you know, a few months old. So anyways, uh, Richard Lieva Munoz Ramirez was born to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez in El Paso, Texas, on February 29th, 1960. So he was a leap year baby. Interesting fact. I didn't even know 60 was a leap year, so thanks for informing me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and interestingly enough, also, uh, Aline Wernos was also born on February 29th. Not of the same year, but she was also a leap year baby. Interesting. Yeah. So was uh, Ja Rule. Well, okay, that's that's some research. You went deep. Yeah, I did. <laughs> nobody gives a fuck what Ja Rule's birthday is. No. <laughs> <laughs> The only so, reason I found that is because I was looking for, like, people connected to crime, and his name came up because of the whole uh, fire festival thing. <laughs> so I was like, oh, another February 29th person. Those are the yeah. only three I found. His There's other fam- odd- His whole family's like, ah, oh, it's Jaws' birthday, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, both of Ramirez's parents immigrated from Mexico to El Paso, Texas, to make a better life for themselves. Uh, El Paso, I've been there before a couple of times, driven through. It's obviously not the most ideal place to live. Uh, it's definitely better than a qua- across the river in uh, Juarez. It's you know just in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. I think it's like a 10 or 11-hour drive away from here because Texas is just so huge. And there's nothing there. I mean, it's just desert and nothing. It's not a place I would want to live. You'd just be isolated in the middle of nowhere. But a... Uh, Richard's father, Julian, was a police officer in Juarez uh, for a little bit. You know, he came from, they, both his parents literally came from nothing. Like, they were just, you know, very, you know, poor people from Mexico. And his dad finally got a job as a police officer in Juarez, but Mercedes did not want him to do that. So a, uh, he got a job building train tracks in Texas for better pay. And she didn't want him to do that because of, like, you know, the corruption and violence. She was just, you know, felt he was too dangerous for her husband to have a gun. She was probably right on that count, as you'll see a little bit later. <clears throat> so uh, Mercedes' pa- parents didn't approve of Julian because he didn't really have an education. He was a giant dude. Like, he was really tall, really big, really muscular. And so he just essentially did just, like, hard, has done hard work all his life, hard physical labor. Like, he would, like, carry the big railroad ties around and use those to build railroad tracks. The dude was ripped according to the book i read very very strong very big guy but a uh, mercedes chose to marry julian regardless of her parents you know obvious they didn't like him and actually uh julian grew up in a very very abusive household like his dad regularly beat him and all his brothers until like when he was 12 he finally like stood up to his dad and he's like you're not beating me anymore and finally, his dad stopped beating him. So there was a there's like a history of physical abuse in Julian's family. But they uh, Julian Mercedes wound up having five children. Uh, 
Richard was the youngest, and his older siblings were Robert, Joseph, Ruth, and Reuben. So four boys and one girl. And then to make ends meet and feed their growing family, Mercedes was a maid for a while, you know, to help, you know, with the income for the family. And then eventually she got a better job at a boot factory. Go figure, a boot factory in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, she made boots, and while she worked with the leather in the boots, she worked with very strong and harsh chemicals. And at this time, the effects of the chemicals were unknown to people. So her and all of her fellow employees there that did this job uh, they would often go home not feeling well until later she finally sued the company and then the company started to provide safety equipment such as respirators and you know gloves and eye goggles and all that for her and the, all the other employees. But for a long time, she worked there without the safety equipment and was exposed to these really bad chemicals. <clears throat> and then in addition to this, this is what's so this is just crazy. So in the late 1950s and early 60s, the U.S. military was testing nuclear weapons in the New Mexico desert. And the fallout from these tests would frequently blow over to El Paso and Juarez, and it started causing many birth defects and cancers in people. Wow. I didn't know it was yeah. that close. Yeah. And New, actually, if you go look at a map, El Paso is just the very westernmost point of Texas, and it's right under the New Mexico border. So they were doing you know, these nuclear tests not that far away. And, you know, the winds would just blow the fallout down there. And at the time, the military knew about the fallout and the effects of fallout because of what had happened in Hiroshima. But they hadn't made it public to the American public yet. So they just kept on testing these bombs and just letting this, you know, nuclear fallout go around and, you know, poisoning people. And because they were just so caught up in keeping up with the Russians or trying to stay ahead of the Russians, they just didn't think, it would, oh, we don't need to tell anybody, which is kind of messed up. But while uh, Mercedes was pregnant with her children, she often had problems and complications. And so doctors suspected that it was because of the nuclear fallout and the toxic chemicals from the boot factory. So this led to uh, a lot of developmental defects on the Ramirez children growing up. Uh, Richard also, when he was like six years old, suffered a severe head injury at a young age. And if you know anything about the psychology of serial killers, several, it's a, several serial killers have suffered like major head trauma at a young age. And if you look into that, you'll see in a lot more of that. But Richard has always enjoyed music. And so one day he was at home with the nanny, and he asked if he could put on some music so he could dance. And the nanny said no. And Richard ignored her and tried to climb to the top of a dresser to turn the music on. This caused the dresser to become unbalanced and to fall onto Richard's head and severely hurt him. And she called, you know, Mercedes from the boob factory. She came home, fired the nanny, and, you know, Richard seemed to be okay. But if you have paid any attention to the NFL recently, uh, you will know that CTE is a real problem. Also, along with head injuries, many athletes and other people who have suffered severe head injuries can wind up having very violent behavior. And Dr. Kevin Crutchfield from LifeBridge Health says, typically what happens when you suffer a brain injury is different parts of the brain can be involved. And some of that can lead to what we call disinhibition. So the part of the brain that inhibits the excessive emotional responses 
gets damaged. Essentially, it's like uncaging a wild beast. Yikes. Yeah. So this can sometimes be also brought on by PTSD, but each brain is different, so there's no good way to really predict who is going to react or if anyone's going to react in a very particular way because it kind of varies from person to person. But they do know that, you know, head trauma, especially at a young age, leads to problems. And head trauma in general can, when it damages your frontal lobe, it can bring out a lot more violent behavior because you're, you're not really inhibited anymore by a sense of morality or just, you know, you just all these violent urges tend to start coming out. So if you know anything about football, you can see that quite frequently just in sports news because there's it always seems to be there's a football player getting arrested for domestic violence or beating up somebody or shooting or stabbing somebody. You know, the NFL hid the effects of concussions for so long. And so now it's starting to come to light. That's really interesting because I always wonder how people get to where they can do things like he did. Mm-hmm. How, how do you how does your brain work where you can do that because it seems like you wouldn't have any conscience it's like how do you have no conscience like no concept of feeling for other people yeah and, you know and that's it so that's an interesting part of it i guess yeah and it's it's like it, it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of things like okay it's likely that you know the strong chemicals the nuclear fallout and the head trauma obviously had some sort of you know, adverse effects on Richard's brain from the time he was a fetus inside his mother's womb until the time he's growing up. Because there's still, you know, this he's still around the nuclear fallout as he's growing up and stuff like that. So I don't think it's really just one thing that was leading him to be more prone to violent behavior. No, because you got to figure he's from a family of five children. Yeah. And as far as you know, none of the other four were serial killers. Right. And so, as- yeah, so it's not an end-all, be-all, like, we're not trying to tell people that this is the reason why he did this. And, right. You know, but it's just interesting to know there are contributing factors for everybody and everybody's different. So, you know, it has some validity, but I don't, you know, I don't think we're trying to say that that's, yeah. you know, the reason that he had no conscience specifically, but uh, because people still have ability to choose. Yeah. You know, and that's why I had that, uh, found that quote in but there. I, from that but I do believe that genetics matter because, for instance, when I eat a nacho, oh, it stays home. <laughs> you know, if 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 uh, some other people I know who have just completely different genetics eat ten nachos, they go to someone else's body. I don't know where they go. Get you know, out but of that's my just damn the nachos! Way... <laughs> <laughs> that's just the way that people's like genetics do work differently. So, in the same yeah. way, I mean, your brain can work different because my body works different than other people's. Yeah, no, that's very true. My wife so, should be huge, and she's not, so it's, <laughs> not, it's not fair. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, Richard's dad, Julian, was also known for having a very quick temper. Uh, Julian was regularly beaten when he was growing up in Mexico, like I said, but he wanted to be a better father and give his kids a better life than he had growing up. And it was a very big deal to him. He still struggled with it, though, because he still had a quick temper. And he wouldn't regularly beat Richard or his siblings, but he would if they did something Julian thought was especially bad. Uh, Richard's older brothers were getting uh, beatings for getting caught with drugs, skipping school, or other acts of like teenage rebellion. Uh, the worst, worst instance of this was when Richard's oldest brother was arrested, and Julian just like beat him very, very harshly until 
you know, Mercedes came and was like, stop, you know, like stop hitting him. And so uh, crazy thing is <laughs> Julian would even beat himself when he got angry and frustrated. Uh, once when he was at home trying to repair the kitchen sink, he could not figure out how to fit together the drain pipes. So he got so angry and frustrated with this that he beat himself in the head with the hammer till he was bleeding profusely. Okay, uh, I don't even know how to feel about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's mad. I mean, I've seen people get mad before and, like, do that weird shit where they hit themselves in the head. Yeah. But uh, using a weapon on yourself? Yeah. Like, hammer. holy shit. A yeah. hammer to yeah. the skull. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, wow, what do you say? I guess it's good they didn't just hit someone else right then. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's so scary th- pissed. Yeah. That what that just shows like his dad was one of those guys where like he wanted to do better but he still would like lose his temper and just lose all control. Like that's losing control right there. When you're just wailing on yourself with a hammer. Yeah, and when like, they say beating the kids, I was thinking like spanking like yeah, you get No, no, no. We, it was on. like fists, belts, sticks, stuff like that. Oh, okay. Not like spankings. No, no. Beating like if it was a spanking, I would say spanking. When I say beating, I mean beating with like an object. Like he's like close fist punching this kid. Yeah, or punching yeah. these kids. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 not acceptable because uh, you can't hide the marks that way. <laughs> Just no. you know. But when Richard was growing into his horrible teenage years, dad. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Preface that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, when Richard grew into his teenage years, he would avoid his father's temper. How? By sleeping in a nearby cemetery. He just wouldn't go home after school sometimes. If he Dude, that's really his... sad. That's really sad, though. Yeah. His dad was, since his dad worked building the railroad, uh, more, more frequently, his dad would be out of town. Because as the railroad tracks kept going further out, he would come home less and less. So if his dad was gone, Richard would stay at home. But if his dad was coming back, then Richard would leave and go sleep in the cemetery because he didn't want to get beat up. Yeah, because uh, from what we're saying, this is a big jacked up dad. This is like yeah. a normal dad. It's just gonna, you could be 18 and went to jail and he's like, I'm going to kick your ass. And you know you're getting your <laughs> ass kicked, right? Yeah. Yeah, that'd yeah. be scary. That'll, put a, that'll make a dude sleep in a sleep cemetery. Yeah. And while Richard was tall, he was very thin and very just skinny. Very. But, but for those of you who you've had to have seen the picture of, of who we're talking about, the Night Stalker. He's the guy in the news where he was in court and holds up his hand. He had a pentagram on it. Yeah. Okay, if you've seen that photo, which I think almost everyone has, mm-hmm. that he is by far, to me personally, the most scary of them all. Of the two. Mm-hmm. Like, the reason that he was considered a predator, I think, is because he couldn't charm women like some other ones, like Ted Bundy, who was handsome. Like, this guy was ghoulish. And the only way he was going to get near you is if he snuck up. Like, yeah. he's that scary. Like, I, you see, there's very few people that actually physically scare me when I see them. He scared me from the first photo I saw of the guy. Oh, yeah. Scary. Just look up Richard Ramirez photos on, like, Google Images. And the first, like, four that come up, you're like, ah! <laughs> exactly. Like, he's soulless looking, man. Yeah, you're just like, oh, my. Like, he's one of those people that if you saw him in public, you'd just be like, get out of here. I'm, I'm, you just leave. Get in your car, drive away, and run away. You don't, you would just, like, feel uncomfortable. Well, nowadays, we just go, oh, that was a serial killer. <laughs> Jeez. Mope around much? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when Richard was 12, uh, another very uh, big impact started happening in his life. 
that uh, also contributed, I believe, contributed to his, you know, uh, sadistic, murderous behavior. Uh, when he was 12, he began to spend time with his older cousin, Miguel, who was known as Mike. Uh, Mike had recently returned from deployment in Vietnam, where he was a decorated Green Beret. And Mike would brag about what he had done in combat to Richard. Uh, the sick thing is, is he had Polaroid pictures he would show Richard. In Vietnam, Mike took photographs of him forcing Vietnamese women to give him oral sex and then raping them. And then in a couple of instances, he had uh, in a next in like the next photograph, he was holding the Vietnamese woman's severed head. So all of this. He had Polaroids it, of this? Yeah. Wow, that's messed up. Yeah. That would fuck a kid up. Oh, yeah. And he's 12 years old. And already weird. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And already has like a troubled childhood. So then his uncle comes back from a brutal war and his uncle is murdering and raping civilians just because. And he's showing off and laughing about it. And he's got all these pictures to document and prove it to him. So as a 12 year old, he's seen all this. So all of this greatly influenced Richard. And he began to spend more and more time with his uncle Mike. And he would ask him to share more and more war stories because he was just fascinated and excited by it. And Richard then also asked Mike how to teach him and how to fight and shoot and how to be stealthy. So he started to learn when he was 12 from his uncle, basically the skills he would later on use, which is nuts. But eventually Richard saw his very first murder in person on May 4th, 1973. Uh, Mike and his wife... Jesse were having an argument that escalated so severely that Mike pulled out a 38 caliber revolver and shot his wife in the face right in front of Richard. Uh, Mike was arrested but found not guilty by reason of insanity and only spent four years in a Texas state mental hospital. Yikes. Yeah. And then uh, in a book, in an interview, they asked, you know, Richard how he you know, felt about his uncle getting out. And he was like, oh, my uncle didn't do anything wrong. He was just a victim from, you know, the war. And, you know, it was good he got off on the insanity plea. That's part like this is one instance why the guilty by reason of insanity defense and plea now has changed a lot over the last years. Uh, it's harder to get that you know, call from a judge or a jury now, because back in the sixties and seventies, if you just killed somebody or did some brutal act, you, it was more frequent that you could be like, Oh, I was insane. And you could get off it or just get a few years in a state you know, mental hospital. You wouldn't really get punished for it. But now the laws on that have changed and it requires many psychological evaluations from many different doctors and they all have to have a consensus. And it really has to be a true case of like mental instability. Whereas a lot of people were just getting away with it and just pleading it and acting crazy in court. I don't know. This dude wasn't acting though. And here's no. the thing though. I was, what I was thinking about was when you were telling me that he was showing him these Polaroid photos, mm -hmm. uh, this, these would have been color photos yeah. exposed to a kid, 12 years old in the sixties. This mm -hmm. is not like now where every kid has seen a million acts of violence by the time they're 10. This is right. the time when people didn't even see this. So this would have been, like, shockingly opposed to what any other kid would have been exposed to. I mean, this would have oh, been yeah. as dark as dark can be and then beyond. So it's no wonder that this would have an extreme effect on anybody yeah. at that age. I mean, that, and, you know, wow, you, this guy should just have been, he should have been 
prosecuted for doing that to a kid. Yeah, definitely. But he wasn't. And as far as I know, he was never rearrested or reoffended and has just been out. And so that's just, I mean, the dude got away with murdering his wife and got away with murdering people in Vietnam. So he was What's even scarier was the fact that she brought out that at this early age, Richard is literally being trained how to be stealthy, how to fight yep. yeah. by an actual decorated Green Beret who's been in combat. I mean, yeah. you want to talk about a scary, like, good reference for that type of thing. I mean, that's adding fuel to a, a machine that's no wonder he's such a monster and good at it. Yeah. 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 His, yeah. His uncle, who had special forces training, is teaching him special forces training. I mean, obviously, it's not like the same type of thing. He didn't go through boot camp and didn't spend months getting trained but his uncle's teaching him oh you know this is how you get away with it this is how you sneak around this is how you shoot this is how you use a knife and exposing him to the violence which is going to desensitize him should he ever yeah. his fantasies were going to go from fantasies to reality right well after the murder of his aunt richard became very withdrawn from his family and then he moved in with his older sister ruth and her husband roberto uh, Roberto was not much a uh, better influence on young Richard. Uh, Roberto was a compulsive peeping Tom. And in the middle of the night after his wife went to sleep, he would stalk around the neighborhoods trying to see naked women through their windows. Uh, he would take Richard along with him. Richard was like, you know, the 14. fuck. Yep. Great family. God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Starting to make us sound kind of like normal, right? I know. <laughs> you know like my childhood wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I can't oh I can't even imagine like your uncle or your you know not your uncle, but I mean is his brother in law? Yeah, his brother in law is taking him around. Hey, let's go find naked women to look at. I mean the we'll worst thing the I night. saw in a Polaroid was like a cousin's titty or something. I mean Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So also around this time, Richard began taking LSD and he started having an interest in Satanism. Well, that's always a good mix. A little LSD with your Satanism. Yeah. After, you know, seeing a brutal murder, getting beaten up your whole life, having nuclear fallout, you know, most of your life. You know, I mean, it's just a plethora of nastiness that comes to create a perfect storm. So then... Because of his Uncle Mike's stories from Vietnam, Richard began developing an intense obsession and interest in forced bondage and rape after hearing these stories. So he would frequently try and get his hand on as much bondage and rape fantasy porn as he could, which only just added more fuel to the fire. But interestingly enough, Richard's first sexual encounter was very normal. There was a girl at school that showed an interest in him but he was still very, very shy, and he just kind of, like, you know, wouldn't talk very much in school, and he kind of ignored her. But she kept on pursuing him until finally she was like, oh, you know, let's have sex. And so they tried to do it at her house, and they couldn't because her family was there. So Richard took her to the cemetery, and they had sex there. Well, he was comfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So <laughs> just like what <laughs> but they would hook up there for a while and she would later stay in interviews that richard was very sweet and caring and didn't ask or push for anything out of the ordinary like when she found out his crime she just couldn't understand because she had never seen any of that from him she was like he was just a normal person he was 
you know, very kind and gentle and caring to me. And she's like, he never tried to like do anything weird with me. And so she was completely shocked. I'm so glad that I'm not a serial killer who they're going to go back and be like, you know, we found the first person that went and be like, he was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone down there like, yep, you're still an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Shoo. Yeah. That'll keep me out of a felonies for life right there. Oh, yeah. So after a while, this normal sexual experience wasn't enough for Richard. And he knew she would definitely not be open to his sadistic fantasies. So he just broke up with her and stopped seeing her. So this kind of comes to the end of, you know, all of the stuff that made Richard Ramirez into what he was. But it's really hard to point out any one thing that made him such a violent killer. You know, there was the nuclear fallout, the factory chemicals while he was in, you know, his mother's womb, the uh, the head trauma, the very poor rail mo- male role models in his life that encourage violence, anger, and rape and stalking, and then hard drug use such as LSD. So it really was, in my thought, you know, just a perfect storm of events that put him on this path to being one of the most notorious serial killers of all time. So... Richard's first recorded crime occurred when he was in high school. He was employed at a Holiday Inn where he had a master key to get into the rooms. He would use this master key to break in and rob hotel you know, guests while they weren't in the rooms. They would come, leave their luggage, and he would break in, steal stuff, and then leave. He had been fantasizing about raping a woman, and one day he noticed a man leave his uh, wife in a room alone, And he went out. And so Richard saw this as his chance. So Richard used his key to get into the room. He snuck up behind the woman and covered her eyes and attempted to rape her. Now, the woman knew her husband would quickly return. So she fought him as best as she could while he was attempting to rape her. The man, in fact, the husband really did uh, return very quickly and found Richard trying to rape his wife and just beat the snot out of Richard while his wife called the police. So... Richard was immediately fired from this job and then the, you know, the police went to prosecute him and then they asked the man and his wife, they were like, okay, you're going to have to return to testify against him. But because they were from out of state and they wanted to forget the whole thing, the charges were dropped. Richard told his family and his friends that she, uh, you know, it was all a misunderstanding that the woman had invited him in and, you know, oh, come, you know, sleep with me. And then as soon as her husband came back, she pretended to not be into him anymore. And his family believed this and wound up supporting him because they, you know, they just thought, oh, he's just the poor victim in all this. So Richard's brother, Reuben, had moved by this time, moved to Los Angeles. And uh, Richard, about this time, dropped out of high school. So he would go to visit his brother. Now, his brothers had been teaching him how to become a thief. And when he saw how many people were living in L.A., how massive of a city it was, he decided to move there to become a full-time thief. He had this idea that he could just steal for the rest of his life and that would be his income because he had been taught how to be sneaky and, you know, how to, you know, just... And then he learned how to find fences and stuff to way to, you know, sell his, you know, stolen goods. Some people go with what they know. and uh... Yeah. That's kind of what he was taught, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's, and he listened. His goals are going to be low. Uh, he came from nothing, you know. To rest of us, be like that. That's your plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Okay. And you think this is going to work? 
Yeah, right, but to him, it seemed perfectly logical. I'm, I'm living the dream. I see this big city, seeing some opportunities to open up, yeah. to do some networking for my thievery. Yeah. And then it progressed into other things. Yeah. So now this gets to the point where Richard started his murders, and they, as he would later become known, the Night Stalker. So the killings that Richard, you know, was really, really known for. Uh, I'm going to give you just an overview of some of these crimes. I'm not going to go into every single one. Uh, there's tons of other podcasts and books out there that go into really big details or uh, much, much more extensive details. And I'm going to go, if you want further information, I just don't want to repeat what a bunch of other people have done. I want to give you guys something different. But just to give you a refresher, uh, Richard's actual first known murder, this was before he was known as the Night Stalker, was on April 10th, 1984. Uh, he, oh my goodness. Nine-year-old May Lung was found in the basement of a hotel in San Francisco. She had been raped and stabbed to death, and then her body had been hung from a pipe to resemble Jesus hanging on the cross. The investigation went cold for over two decades until finally DNA technology was advanced enough and was able to match DNA that was found at the crime scene. This DNA was matched to Richard Ramirez, but Ramirez had already been caught, you know, 15 years earlier. Wow. So he never even confessed to that. He never even confessed to that one. That one just happened. They know it was him because of DNA evidence. And actually, the crazy thing is, is they found another sample of DNA at that crime scene, and they were never able to match anybody to that other DNA sample. And it wasn't the little girls, and it wasn't Richard's. Yeah. Yeah. So some people speculate and think that there was somebody else there, but they don't know for sure. They've never been able to concretely prove anything. So... The first of the actual publicized Night Stalker murders was on June 28, 1984. In and you got to figure, he just started with a nine-year-old girl. Right. This is a soulless, cold person. Yeah. I mean, if that's where you start, that's just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, it shows just a lack of empathy and emotion. Complete selfishness. Yeah. Complete, complete and utter. Just yeah. weird. Wow. Yeah, so that is so one. dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it yeah, it gets darker. <laughs> yeah, it gets darker. One. Uh, so it was in Glasso Park, Los Angeles, and oh my goodness, Richard broke into seventy-nine-year-old Jenny Vinco's house, where he stabbed her repeatedly and slashed her neck so severely that he nearly decapitated her. He also ransacked the house looking for valuables to sell to his fence. So this was the first case where the Los Angeles, uh, or I should say the L.A. County Sheriff's Department started investigating him. And actually, the sad thing is, is back in the 70s and 80s, like now in like 84 and 85, um, the police, you know, the, the police districts, or I should say the police stations didn't really communicate with each other. Like there was LAPD and then, you know, there's like the Sheriff's Department and then each little town or suburb has their own police department and they didn't really communicate with each other and then these cops as some cops still too they get into this like you know shoving match where they sometimes don't want to share information and this happened a lot in his case where they didn't want to share information they all wanted to be the well this crime happened in my territory so i'm just going to hold on to this information and not share it with you so that happened a lot in this case. Richard probably could have been caught sooner if they had been more interconnected, but that just wasn't the case back then. 
So he stayed free for a year and after this first murder in L.A., and he just kept killing people. Uh, the next murder occurred on... Here's the thing, though. These are the documented ones. I still believe that there probably was a few other ones that he just never got linked to. Oh, yeah. There, like, because the other to. reason, too, is because you notice right away from the first two, he went from a 9-year-old to a 79-year-old. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're not even going to think, especially these are different jurisdictions, that these are going to be the same person. Right. Because that just that's, that shows absolutely... This person that would do this would have absolutely no understanding of the spectrum. A body's a body. It, it doesn't matter to him. It's a female and it's a body. Yeah. I mean, that's just unbelievable. So, you know, and this is before a good fingerprinting system. This is before DNA testing, before the Internet. So, yeah. you know, for all the stuff that I trash about those things, I'm really thankful for it when it comes to law enforcement. Yeah. Because uh, now they can put pieces together in seconds that would have taken months or even years. Back yeah, in those days, actually, in I, uh, in Richard's one of Richard's first two uh, murders in L.A., he left a fingerprint behind, and they pulled it, but they had nothing to match it to because the system wasn't computerized. So back then, they had like four million uh, fingerprints on file, and every fingerprint had to be matched by hand. But they wouldn't check the fingerprint from a crime scene against the ones they had on file unless they had a suspect in mind. So they just had his fingerprint on file for a while, but they weren't checking it against anything else because they didn't have, things weren't computerized. And they weren't going to pay some dude to just go through one by one and compare them. Well, yeah, that's millions. It's literally impossible. So it was just a whole, it was a different time back then. But the next murder occurred on May 17th, 1985 in Rosemead, California. Uh, Richard would steal a car, and then drive around aimlessly. He wouldn't have a destination in mind while casing homes or looking for victims while listening to music. Uh, his favorite bands were like Judas Priest, ACDC. He was really into like black metal, dark metal, heavy metal. That was his thing. Um, on this day, he noticed a woman, Maria Hernandez, pulling into her garage. So he stopped and then snuck up on the house. And when she closed the garage door... With the automatic garage door opener, Richard snuck in as the door was shutting. But as he did, it dropped his ACDC hat. So Maria heard the noise of the hat falling on the concrete and turned around and saw Richard there aiming his 22 caliber handgun at her. And he fired. She instinctively raised her hands to, you know, in defensive gesture to, you know, defend herself. I mean, it's a bullet, but that's just your, your natural reaction. And the bullet ricocheted off the keys in her hand. This severely hurt her hand, but it saved her life. So she pretended to be dead, and Richard walked inside the house. Now, once he was inside, she went outside looking for help. Inside, Maria's roommate, Dale Okazaki, heard the shot and saw Richard enter into the kitchen. She hid on the other side of a counter, and Richard had seen her And so he just patiently waited to see what she would do. And he aimed the gun at the counter where he last saw her. She waited for, you know, a little bit, but she was wondering if he had left or not. So she peeked her head up over the counter and Richard shot her in the head, killing her instantly. He then thought about ransacking the house, but he figured somebody heard these shots. So he ran outside, didn't really get to rape anybody, didn't get to steal anything. And he saw Maria again. Maria, freaked out, screaming, said, please don't shoot me again. 
and Richard, enraged, knowing that somebody was had called the police by now, just took off. So this was the first living witness that he had left to one of his crimes. Now, this same night, within the hour, Richard was super frustrated because he wasn't able to rape either of the women. So he was just super frustrated. He drove around looking for any other possible victims when he noticed Sai Lan Yu, but she was known as Veronica. Now, Veronica noticed Richard following her as she was driving. This is the same night? Same night, within an hour. Oh, my gosh. Within an hour. So she pulled over, and Richard came up to her window, and she started yelling at him, confronting him. She said, why are you following me? She said, no, no, I'm not following you. So he kept denying it, and she kept insisting, no, no, you're following me. I've been watching you. You're following me. Why are you following me? And so he finally got frustrated because she was yelling and screaming at him. So he shot her twice with his gun and then fled the scene. So he killed two people and injured another one all within the span of like an hour. Wow. And then he was super frustrated because he didn't get to steal anything or rape anybody. So he just went and did a bunch of drugs. His big thing at this time was cocaine. Oh, that's always good to feel the fire. Yeah. Man. Cocaine, yeah, cocaine to come up and weed to come down. That was his thing. So that's weird. I would have, I would have spotted him for heroin or something. No, it, wow. his LSD when he was younger, and then cocaine and weed when he was going through his on his like crime run of terror. Those were the two things he really did a lot. I of. guess if you smoked weed, you'd have to do the coke because you're just gonna sit on a couch, right, without the coke. So right. wow, that's that's I never heard of that that mix. That's crazy. Yeah. So ten days after this. Uh, Richard broke into the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara in Whittier, California. Now, Richard had previously robbed their home a year before. So he entered and snuck into the bedroom, shot Vincent in the head with his twenty-two. Maxine was woken up by this, and Richard started beating her, and then he tied her up and started yelling at her, asking her where all of the valuables were. And so Richard began ransacking the house looking for anything of value. He was going through the closet. And now remember I said how that he had robbed this house a year before. So a year before, after the robbery, Vincent had purchased a shotgun because of the break-in. And so he's like, I'm going to buy a shotgun to protect myself and my family. So Maxine knew that the shotgun was under their bed. So she managed to untie herself and retrieve the gun. While Richard was in the closet looking for stuff to steal, he heard her behind him. He turned around and she was pointing the shotgun at him. So he saw that and he froze and she pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. Vincent had been showing the gun off to some family members and some kids. So he had unloaded it for safety, but never reloaded it before putting it back under the bed. Richard was so furious that she would try to shoot him. He shot her three times with the 22, then went to the kitchen and grabbed a large knife, returned to her body and mutilated it. Furious because she was, you know, stood up to him and he also didn't get to rape her. He wanted to humiliate her and degrade her in some way. So he used the kitchen knife to cut off her eyelids and then pull out her eyes. And then he stole her jewelry box and put the eyes in the jewelry box and then left with them. And at this crime seat was where Richard first left the footprints in a flower bed of his avia shoes. And this was one of the few leads that would lead detectives to connect all his crimes. Yeah. What was crazy was I know a little bit about that case and they were the only shoes made by avia in that whole area, his size that were sold. 
Mm-hmm. But there was only like eleven pairs of shoes sold in that area of that style and color, and then that was the only one in his size. Right, and then but he had paid cash. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they couldn't c- connect him to. Oh it. man. They found out where the shoes had been sold from, but they it was paid cash, so they had no idea. Obviously, they didn't have CCTV or whatever back then. Apparently, they don't remember ghoulish motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. I would have been like, damn. Yeah. So Richard's murders wound up typically following this kind of like loosely tied together pattern. He would enter a home, kill any men inside, tie up the woman and any kids if they were there, rape the woman, and then demand valuables. And if any woman resisted them, he would kill them. Uh, after soon after this, he murdered Bill Doy and assaulted his wife Lillian in Monterey Park, L.A. He broke into the home of elderly sisters Mabel Bell and Florence Lang. Aren't these like really nice neighborhoods? Yeah. So yeah. this is like that's why I got all the airtime, right? Now right. he's going out into the wealthy neighborhoods. Yeah, these people had money, and he knew what what places to steal from, places that would have stuff that was valuable to steal. So he didn't go rob the poor neighborhoods because they didn't have anything that he wanted to sell. He was going for high-ticket items. Yeah, mostly like jewelry and any cash he could find. So after this, uh, oh, okay, after attacking the two sisters, uh, he drew a pentagram on one of their thighs and on the walls of each bedroom of the house. And unfortunately, Mabel Bell died of her injuries in this attack, but her sister Florence Lang did survive. Then Richard broke into a Burbank house where he assaulted Carol Kyle after he tied up her 11-year-old son, ransacked the house, and then assaulted, uh, sorry, assaulted Carol repeatedly. Then he broke into the home of Mary Louise Cannon, who was 75. He beat her as she slept with a lamp, until she was unconscious, and then he stabbed her repeatedly with the kitchen knife, killing her. He just would, he just had no off button. Like, his dad had the violent temper, and he just had that, but it was in a very specific way. Did they determine why he just went for these women? Like, why he would just kill them? Did, was there any reasoning behind it at all? I mean, did he hate women? Like, what was this? Well, I'll get, I'll get a little bit more to okay. that a little bit there. I'm just, it, it, there's a few different beliefs on that. So okay, All right. yeah, that. as long as I know, we'll get to it. I, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So next, Richard broke into the home. Uh, uh, sorry, into a home in Sierra Madre and beat 16 year old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron from the car that he stole. He looked for a knife, but he couldn't find find one. So he began to strangle her with a telephone cord. As he was strangling her, sparks began to come out of the cord and she began to breathe. This freaked Richard out so much, he ran from the house believing that Jesus had intervened on her behalf to save her from his attack. Bennett wound up surviving the attack but needed 478 stitches to close the the lacerations on her scalp. Yeah. The, The dude just came unhinged completely unhinged so richard murdered several more people and attacked and raped several others these are all close like not not necessarily they are clustered in space in time and space but like it's like one just after another right it's like every few days it all happened within uh within a year and so 
some of them would happen really close together and then he would take like, you know, a week or two and then he would tack again and then a week later. And sometimes it was like a bunch together and then sometimes a little bit more time apart. But it all happened within a relatively short amount of time. It wasn't like some serial killers where it's like one year, wait a while, attack another one, right. wait a while, attack another one. And that because I remember this case because I'm old enough and I remember it was like everyone was so scared. Yeah. Because it was happening so much. It was like they had and it seemed like they had no clue. Right. And the police, the police had, you know, a fingerprint on file, his shoe print. And from some of his from this, um, there was other uh, women that he attacked that he would let go if they didn't resist. Most of the time he would just rape them and then leave. And then he would they would give, you know, like a description of him. So they had like some composite images, sketches drawn up, but they weren't really to able to get a positive identification from that because it was just kind of like this vague description. And he was very uniquely ghoulish looking. Yeah. It would have been hard <coughs> to draw that because you wouldn't think somebody that weird looking really existed. Yeah. So during his spree in L.A., he finally wound up heading to San Francisco where he assaulted and shot more people. So then people began freaking out because here's this murderer went from the L.A. area to the San Francisco Bay Area. So then there began to be more of a panic in the general public in California. So <clears throat> at this time, the mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, in an effort to try and appease the public and calm them down, she divulged sensitive information such as Richard's Avia shoes at a press conference. So she went and took all the investigation information and gave it out to the public. This infuriated the investigating detectives because they knew Richard would just change his methods and buy new shoes. So Richard did that very thing. He saw it on the news. And that night, he walked to the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge, threw off his Avia sneakers and his 22 in the middle of the bay there, and then went out and bought new shoes and a 25 caliber handgun. So that really wasn't the best move. No, really, really messed up the investigation doing that. So then about early ish into his attacks, Richard would start to yell at his victims and tell them to quote swear to satan because he was satan he was into satanism i i find it interesting because i've listened to a few other podcasts and i've read a couple of other books and seen some documentaries and most of them say oh well he would claim that but i don't think he was i do think he was i'll get into that more later and also the book i read the book i the Prime, the book I read that got most of this information out of was a book done by a writer who did three years of research to write this book. He interviewed Richard Ramirez himself, and then he interviewed Ramirez's friends and family and the detectives who caught Ramirez and chased him. So I would think that this guy has the most concrete information because he studied this for three years. And this guy did believe that Richard was very much into Satanism because Richard even said it of his own volition. So... And also they have other people to back that up, as you'll see here in a little bit. So when he would demand from the victims where their valuables were, some would say, often they would say, I don't have anything else of value. I swear to God, this would enrage Richard. He would start beating them and tell them, no, swear to Satan. So he would hit them until they would swear to Satan and make him happy. Richard believed that Satan would protect him and keep him from being captured. He thought he was inv invincible. He would pray to Satan before committing these crimes, believing that the more people he killed, 
the more slaves he would have in hell after he died to do his bidding. Richard also believed that the more suffering he brought on people on earth, that would make him more of a hero when he would later on go to hell. Whoa, that's a weird motivation. Yeah. Well, check this out. So, you know, do you know who Anton LaVey is? Yes. So, Richard met Anton LaVey. For those of you who don't know, Anton LaVey is the, I believe, the writer of the Satanic Bible and kind of like the godfather of the Satanic movement. Right. He's the founder of the Church of Satan. Satan, yeah. And his, yeah. His, he's died, but now his daughter runs. But yeah. Right. Well, Richard met Anton LaVey, and uh, LaVey said in her interview that he liked Richard and was very fond of him. And then, according to a story that Richard told, uh, <coughs> he attended a ritual with LaVey where Richard felt the cold hand of Satan on his back. Richard said that this shook him to his core, and afterwards, he ran home and called his mom, begging her to pray for him. And when she asked why, he said, quote, I was touched tonight by Satan, Mama. He came to me. So she said, well, I'm going to pray for you. God's going to take care of you. And he said he was terrified. So after this event and after meeting Anton LaVey, Richard just became full on a Satanist. Uh, he cared less and less about his own personal hygiene. He didn't shower very much and he ate mostly candy, junk food, fruit and Coke. This led him to having horrible teeth and very bad breath. And he also didn't shower very much and smelled very leathery. This also became one thing that people had to, started being able to tie together like his crimes to him because of his awful teeth and bad breath. Wow. So Richard's final attack was on Bill Carnes and his fiance Inez Erickson. He broke into their home through the back door. I skipped over like six or seven attacks. It's just, I don't want to go into it. <laughs> it's so much brutality and rape and murder. I just don't want to tell that story again. If you want to hear that, you can find that information somewhere else. Uh, he found his way into their bedroom and cocked his gun. The noise of Richard cocking the gun woke Bill up. He shot Bill three times in the head with his 25 caliber handgun. He then told Erickson that he was the night stalker and he forced her to swear to Satan that she loved Satan while he was beating her. He then tied her up with some of Bill's neckties and then ransacked the house. He then sexually assaulted her in another room and then demanded more cash and jewelry. She said she had no more, and he made her swear to Satan again that, he, that she didn't have anything else of value. After he left, or I'm sorry, as he was leaving, he told Erickson, tell them the night stalker was here. And so she managed, to, get, she managed to call a neighbor, and a neighbor came. He was now advertising himself to his victims, who he was. Because he knew the cops were after him. And so he was like, yeah, I'm the Night Stalker. He was getting that bold. Uh, she managed to get help from a neighbor. And Bill Carnes uh, did survive his injuries, but he isn't the same. I saw an interview with him. He, saw, he got shot three times in the head and lived? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Whoa. I saw an interview with him. And he, he survived, but his life isn't the same because of the injuries from getting shot three times in the head. Can he see? Uh, he can, but he's, he's just, he's disabled. Like he's alive, but he, it's not like he's not a vegetable or anything, but it did ruin his life. Wow. That is just a horrible. Yeah. So, uh, Miss Erickson was able to give a detailed physical description to the detectives. Yet another one. 
and police also had a cast of his footprint from another crime scene. They also found the stolen car that Richard had used for the attack. Previously, <laughs> this is nuts. Previously, before, they had found another car. A cop had actually pulled Richard over after a crime. And the cop even asked Richard, oh, are you that Night Stalker guy going around killing people? And Richard was like, ha, 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 no, I'm not. And so the cop went to check his ID and Richard took off and ran and the cop never caught up with him. But they never connected that event to the Night Stalker because the cop just went and put the car in impound and lost all of the evidence. The cop never reported it. And so later on, they figured out that Richard had you know, they had him, but the lazy investigator and the lazy cop let him get away. So, but after this attack, they found the car that he had stolen. And Richard had been very, very careful to always wipe off any fingerprints, but he missed one on the rear view mirror. This print, they were able to possibly identify him because of the physical description. And then also they tied it to him because he had been previously arrested for car theft. So they were like, hey, this kind of looks like this guy. This reminds us of this guy. Let's check his fingerprint against this arrest record. So now they had, you know, they knew who he was. They knew this was the Night Stalker because of the testimony of this witness and also because they tied him to this previous arrest. So then the investigators debated for a while what they should do with this information. They thought, well, maybe we should keep this under wraps. Finally, the head investigator was like, no. He's like, we should get this out to the public. Somebody's going to recognize this guy. And, you know, they're going to, somebody will call him in. We'll, we'll be able to catch him much easier if everybody knows what he looks like. So Richard at this time had left Los Angeles on August 30th, 1985, and he went to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother. But when he was there, he was unable to meet his brother. So he traveled back by bus to Los Angeles, unaware that he was the most wanted man in California and on every newspaper and TV news program that day. Oops. When he, yeah, exactly. When he arrived at the Los Angeles bus station. I guess I better start there, watching the news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were plain clothes police officers and regularly clothes police officers there searching for him. He saw this and was like, this is kind of weird, but they were only checking the departing buses, oh thinking that goodness. he would try and escape. So no one, no one would thought that he would be coming back into L.A. by bus. So he simply walked past all of the officers and got to East L.A. So soon he noticed a few elderly Mexican women acting afraid of him, and they started calling him El, Ad El Matador. And in English, that means the killer. This freaked him out. And then he saw his picture on the front page of newspapers on the newspaper stand of a convenience store, and he fled in a panic. So he then ran across the Santa Ana freeway and into a Mexican neighborhood. He attempted to carjack a woman and told her, I have a gun. And he didn't have a gun at that time. But she was helped by bystanders who also recognized him. So he ran away from there. Oh, he, he picked the wrong neighborhood, man. Oh, yeah. He definitely did. He then ran through yards, hopping fences, and he also tried to steal two more cars. The final time, the owner of the car it's recognized like Grand Theft him. Auto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the final car he tried to steal, the owner of the car recognized him as he was trying to steal his car. And the owner went out to try and stop him. In the process, Richard drove the car into a brick chimney, stopping the car. 
When he got out of the car to flee, the owner of the car began beating him with a metal bar in the head, and he started calling his neighbors for help. Soon, the locals in the neighborhood overcame Richard, and they were just unmercifully beating him. And at this time, a police officer arrived and literally saved Richard's life by taking him into custody, or else these people would have just killed him there in the street. That's about fair. Yeah. But he... <laughs> yeah, it's not how justice works in our country, but there was a lot of people that, like, after he had been arrested, the public was basically calling for him, the police to let him go so they could finish him off. They were not happy. <laughs> That's some street justice right there. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't even play around. It's like, we're going to start with a pipe. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, oh, like, just a mob of people just going like, after Please arrest me, please. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, later on that night, Richard's brother, Joseph, heard about this on the news, that his brother, they were saying, you know, the news was saying his brother was the Night Stalker. And his brother said, this is a direct quote. He said, it was like getting hit by an ugly stick. Now, I'm not sure if that's a, like, like a thing in Spanish, like a saying in Spanish, but I always think if you get hit by an ugly stick, that just means you're ugly. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, I was kind of like, there's got to be something more to this that I don't understand. But then his brother Joseph went over to his parents' home, and his parents didn't know about it yet. So when Julian and Mercedes heard the news, they didn't want to believe it. I mean, obviously, who would want to? They were in denial about it. So they were all sitting around watching the news. So Richard's father, Julian, said he couldn't take it, so he went down to the local store, purchased some beer and wine, and when he got home, he drank quite a bit of beer and wine and just tried to get really, really drunk. And the more he drank, the more drunk he became and the worse his mood became. At one point, yeah, at one point late in the night, uh, Joseph noticed his dad got up and went over to like a dresser and pulled out a handgun. And Joseph went over to him and said, what are you going to do with that? And Julian replied, I'm going to kill your mother and myself. This is too much shame for me. So Joseph jumped his dad, wrestled the gun away and called him, calmed him down. But Joseph said he really did believe that his dad was going to kill his mom and then himself. Well, that's what I mean. I think that's what he meant by an ugly stick. Like, it was going to make their family name so bad, they were just ruined forever. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, oh, my goodness. So then uh, Richard, you know, obviously went to trial. I'm not going to get very big into the trial. If you want, you know, you can read books and stuff about that. But his uh, trial was very, very long, very drawn out. Very expensive. It was the most expensive trial until the OJ trial, you know, a few years later. Uh, Ramirez, at the time, while he was in trial, he tr- he had tons of female admirers, like women that just thought he was the greatest thing ever. I, I, I never understood that, like how some women get the hots for serial killers. Let me just tell you something, though, when, when you're thinking like that. These are not top shelf women. <laughs> these are the uh, one-twos. Uh, the bottom feeders. So you're not missing any good fish in that group, right? You know who kind of, you know what kind of women, what kind of men these women look for? <laughs> Seahawk predators. Seahawk <laughs> must get so much ass. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on the wrong uh, side, though. Yeah. So, uh, oh my goodness, Ramirez tried to get one of his female admirers to smuggle in a gun for him in court. Because he wanted to shoot the prosecutor, others in the courtroom, and then himself. But his plan was stopped by the police. They figured it out before he could, you know, bring that to fruition. So then they heightened security 
Everyone had to go through security. Security got super tight because of this. But Richard was ultimately convicted on 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 11 counts of sexual assault, and 14 counts of burglary. He was sentenced to death by the gas chamber and sent to San Quentin prison death row. I still think he was probably killed more than 13 people. He I just didn't get connected to those crimes. Didn't he get like 19 death sentences? He got, yeah, he got several death sentences. It was, it was like he, you couldn't get more convicted. Like, yeah, it was, uh, he was <laughs> he never, was ever, ever, ever getting out. And he was definitely no. going to die and he was going to go right to the front of the list. Yeah. So, because people so wouldn't this, have waited for that, man. No. So he became a, he became a serious hero to Satanists and other members of the occult. They thought he was like the greatest thing ever because he was so open about expressing his beliefs in public and you know he didn't show any remorse ever. He even in court was would like cause a commotion, yell, Hail Satan. He drew a pentagram on his palm and everything. Like he was just he thought Satan would get him out of it. He started and, getting a little Hollywood. Yeah, he did. He made it into a scene. But Anton LaVey's daughter, Zena LaVey, visited Richard in jail with her boyfriend. This is his real last name, Nicholas Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> Spelled differently, but it's pronounced Shrek. Get out so of just... my swamp. <laughs> that's every time I read that or read that in the book, that's what I heard was get out of my swamp. <laughs> he must have a great personality. <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, Nicholas uh, had cut off his left ear as a show of faith in his devotion to Satan. So when uh, Nicholas and Zena visited Richard, they expressed their support of him and informed them or informed <laughs> Richard that Anton was praying to Satan for him. They also told him that he was now an honorary member of the Church of Satan. This encouraged Richard greatly because he really, really looked up to Anton. But what's really crazy is. Later on, although he was like literally invited into like this upper realm of the Church of Satan, literally by Anton LaVey. Yeah. Later on, he felt that they were beneath him and that he. Yeah. So he went on on his own still because yeah. he felt that he had a better connection with Satan and that he was more powerful and didn't need to be part of any group. Like he was above everyone. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's weird. Man. Yeah. So after being convicted and everything, uh, Excuse me. Richard scored a 31 out of 40 on Hare's psychopathy checklist. This makes him a primary psychopath. Despite this high score, it is still possible that he is also a malignant narcissist or sociopath. Maybe even all three. So the dude has some very serious mental issues. But Richard finally died of B-cell lymphoma on June 7, 2013, at the age of 53. He was not put to death in the gas tank chamber, you know, and it was because of his, the lengthy appeals process. Basically, they figured that he was never going to go to the gas chamber just because the appeals process was just going to take so long. And he just used it so he could live his natural life out. Right. Wow, that's, I mean, that sucks. It, it does suck in the sense for, like, you know, family members getting justice. I mean, he did get convicted and everything, but he didn't get you know, the actual sentence that he was convicted of or sentenced to, I should say. <clears throat> so that was the refresher on uh, Richard Ramirez. So now we're coming to part two of our story. I told you all this would be worth it. 
And this is a story that you're only going to hear here on this podcast. You're not going to hear it on any of the other podcasts. So this is a story of a previously unknown encounter with Richard Ramirez. Due to the subject matter and the particularly horrible nature of Richard Ramirez's crimes, the people involved have asked me and Juan to withhold their names. So I'm going to give them fake names to protect their identity. I asked them if they would be willing to record an interview with me, but they declined, and so I'm going to respect that. And I can understand why. Uh, if I had personally experienced something similar, I'm sure I would not want my name brought into it, and I wouldn't want to record an interview either. So this all started a few weeks ago when a friend of mine, Sophia, and I were hanging out. She was flipping through the TV you know, channels, and she came across a true crime show about Elisa Lamb and her mysterious death in 2013, the same year as Richard died. I have seen several documentaries on this and listened to a few other podcasts about the death of Elisa Lamb, so I knew, that it was, I knew what this was about. And Sophia asked me, what is this about? And I quickly gave her a quick over on how Elisa Lamb was a backpacker from Canada who was found naked and dead in a hotel water tank, and the cause of her death still remains a mystery. <clears throat> so at this time, the TV show starts showing shots of where, <laughs> there's a twang twister, started showing shots. A twang yeah. twister. <laughs> a twang twister. I don't know, that sounds like pretty fun to me. Anyone knows? I want That's a good move. Twang twister? Star started showing shots of where Elise's death happened. Uh, th th this occurred at the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California. And Sophia said to me, hey, my family lived there when I was born, and my dad used to work there. So I turned to her with a lot of obvious doubt, and I was like, what? She repeated, oh, you know, my, my family lived there when I was born. And my mom said that a black guy tried to rape her when we lived there. And I went, well, that's pretty crazy. Do you know who Richard Ramirez was? She goes, no, I've never heard of him. So I told her he was a really violent serial killer who lived at the Cecil Hotel around that same time. But at this point, I didn't know the dates and anything. So she said, well, what year it was? So I picked up my phone and I looked up Richard Ramirez and the times of his crimes in Los Angeles. So I read that off to her and a, uh, she was like, what? She goes, I, I think I might have lived there at the same time as him. Let me call my parents. And I was like, okay. So she picked up her phone and called her parents, Maria and Jose. And now Maria doesn't speak very good English, and Jose speaks okay English. So the conversation was in Spanish. I could understand enough to get an idea of what they were talking about. So Sophia asked where they had lived when she was born, and Maria replied, oh, Cecil Hotel. So then Sophia then asked her mom, uh, you told me that you, a man there at the hotel, tried to rape you when you lived there. Was he black or was he Hispanic? And Maria replied, oh, he was Hispanic. His name was Richard Ramirez. When Mark told me this, I was like, are you shitting me, man? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to so, know this story. So at this point, I freaked out. I was like, what? And Maria said, yes, Jose knew him. And they would talk when Jose was the security guard at the hotel. So at this point, we were both in shock. And I was mildly freaking out because I... I was like, wow, I've like no more information on this than Sophia does. I was freaking out. And so <laughs> I was mo mostly freaking out because I know how fortunate like she was for being able to survive this. So uh, yeah, that's not an odds game you want to play. 
Exactly, especially since Ramirez didn't like it when people resisted him and his demands. Well, there's so, a silver lining. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't, his, obviously, it wasn't his first uh, uh, failed rape attempt, but Maria said she was able to get away from Ramirez, and she didn't want to talk about it anymore. So I don't blame her. I didn't press. I didn't bug for more questions or anything because I don't want this woman to have to relive that because obviously she found out about who this guy really was after the fact. So I didn't, you know, worry about it. I just, you know, not going to press. So then Sophia at this time was really, really in shock, trying to come to terms with all these new facts that how she grew up in a place where such a violent murderer had been in such close proximity to her and her family. So then she asked her father how long he worked at the hotel. And he said he had uh, worked there from 1980 until 1990. So... Sophia talked to her parents for a minute or two more before they said goodbye and hung up the phone. Uh, we both sat there completely stunned, and she said, you know, you should tell this story on your podcast. So then I later asked her if she would reach out to her parents uh, and if they would be willing to give me a little more information. So Jose agreed to answer a few more questions. Uh, they both, uh, Jose and Maria, immigrated from Mexico and El Salvador, respectively. They once they they met once they had moved to Los Angeles. Uh, both were very very poor and worked very hard to make a life for themselves. So when Sophia asked Jose, you know, why did you live at the Cecil Hotel? And he just was kind of like indignant. And he was like, we were poor, just kind of like, like that's how poor we were. Like we had nowhere else to go because this was apparently a really really terrible place to live, but really really cheap. And they didn't have any other options. So then uh, asked him why he stayed working at the hotel for a decade. And he said because the manager there was very good to him. If he needed an advance in pay, he would always give him an advance on his paycheck. And if he needed time off, he would always give him time off. He said the reason that he quit working there was because in 1990, the hotel management changed. And a new man- the new manager wasn't as kind and helpful as the old manager, so he got a job somewhere else. Jose also says that the hardest part of working there at the hotel was physically having to fight and evict people. Half of the hotel at the time was for residents, and they often wouldn't pay their rent, and he would have to physically remove them. Once, he said, he saw another security guard fighting with a very, very large man, and the man was so strong that he overpowered both of them, and they were just like, okay, fine, you win. And so he said he finally just got tired of having to just physically fight people so frequently. He said he frequently saw people dying, overdosing, jumping from windows, and people assaulting each other. He said it was just a very crazy, wild place to live. <clears throat> so when uh, asked how he could stand working there, especially for so long, he said, I just got used to it. He said everything became so normal and I didn't think anything of it anymore. It's he just really became amazing. desensitized. Yeah, he became desensitized to that whole environment. And like talking to him afterwards, he seemed very just like, what's the big deal kind of a thing. Like still to him, it doesn't, you know, he's still desensitized to it. Like it's not like. Because I you know, know of he, this place and I've seen like documentaries about it. Like this is. Oh, shady. yeah. This is like the slum shady. Like. Yeah. Shit. This is like, like nearby Skid Row shady. Exactly. Yeah. Like where crackheads get like like a hotel for a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is really what Richard did. He would get enough money and stay there for a couple of weeks, go out, do some terrible things, come back, and 
you know, this, oh my goodness, crazy. So he, uh, Jose said that Richard Ramirez seemed very normal, didn't seem anything out of the ordinary. He said that he didn't act weird or murderous. And he said, you know, he was very personable and he would say hello and, you know, be kind as he would come and go from the hotel. He said he didn't stand out at all. If he didn't stand out at all, if you've seen this ghoulish motherfucker, I'll <laughs> let you know how rough that hotel was. Cause yeah, <laughs> if that dude's blending in, damn. <laughs> like, yeah. So <laughs> since I, uh, he quit working at the Cecil Hotel in 1990, he missed also running across serial killer Jack Unterwigger, who was at the Cecil Hotel in 1991. Whoa. Yeah. That's uh, too high of a risk factor for work. I don't know what he was getting paid, but uh, <laughs> it's, not it's enough. probably not enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this story just goes to show you that we can't know all of the crimes uh, violent people have committed. Uh, many crimes, especially rape, uh, child molestation, and sexual assault go unreported. Uh, so many criminals do get away with things even after they are caught for other crimes. And some people just never get caught. Some crimes don't get linked to them. So what have I learned from this? What's the silver lining of this? Uh, be good parents. Be very careful of who you let your kids spend time with. Uh, learn to control your anger and temper. And remember that what you say and do does affect your kids. <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah. And what's crazy it's, is our listeners are the first people to hear this story. This is an unreported yeah. crime. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, and the the book that I read to get a lot of the information for this was uh, the book The Night Stalker by Philip Carlo. It's a great book. It's very, very long. It's like 600 pages, but it's a very good book. The first half is uh, Richard's youth through his crimes, and the last half is The Trial. And so it's a very, very good book. Uh, another thing thought, maybe a silver lining from this, is uh, invest in a security system. Probably not a bad idea. <laughs> You know, invest in a security system. And if you're not anti-gun, buy a gun. Learn how to use it properly and safely. And take a safety course and get a license and abide by your local laws. Or do what I do and just have a really big pit bull that stays in your house all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Man, nobody <laughs> wants to answer my door. <laughs> and and you got cameras everywhere. Yeah, there, there are a lot of cameras. But that's just because, you know, I'm lazy. I don't want to get up and walk around, <laughs> see everything. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is so cheap now. It used to be you had to be rich to have stuff like that. You can spend 150 bucks now and get, like, four cameras. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's and, not that. And then and you can, you can see them on your phone even. Yeah. And so. you can control it all from your phone. It's really, really And nice. even the but cheapest yeah. ones are, you know, cheap, so. Yeah. It's actually pretty cool how you can do all that stuff now. So, yeah, that was a... Uh, Richard Ramirez and a, uh, my friend and my friend's family experience with Richard Ramirez. And trust me, I was, I literally was like freaking out when I, I was like, what? This can't be real. <laughs> like these people are pulling my leg. And, and remember, what? you heard it first here. <laughs> yeah, you did. And also like, it also reminded me like, that's just how bad it is for immigrants. Like I'm big on like, you know, supporting refugees and supporting immigrants and stuff. And that's why, like, here was a woman that was attacked by, you know, some, a, a serial killer attempted to rape her, possibly could have killed her and her infant daughter. You know, we don't know. And she didn't even bother to file a police report or anything because, oh, I'm an immigrant. You know, it was just the attitude of like, she, you know, probably felt like 
you know, I don't speak English, or what do these people actually? Well, if do anyone knows anything about, about the me. police system in those areas during the eight, the mid eighties, oh yeah, yeah, they they weren't gonna give a shit. <laughs> yeah, at that time, if you you know know how the police forces were back then, they had a lot of stuff going on then, and uh, to them that would have just been one person. They're worried about every other person shooting every other person on every neighborhood. So, you know, and they like you said, that was the attitude. It's like. You know, they're barely surviving. Where are they going to go get another job? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're already at the bottom. Yeah. But you know, the other silver <laughs> lining to that story is these people, from what I understand, have done quite well for themselves. And that really shows you that, if you know, you really live the American dream, do it the right way, you know, immigrate properly, and you can start from the bottom and still have a successful, healthy life to the point where your kids don't even know you ever lived that. Yeah. She, uh, Sophia, is now 35, uh, has had no clue that it had ever happened that she had been that close in proximity to Richard Ramirez until then. And her parents wisely, I think never told her. Yeah. So congratulations to them for uh, doing it all right. Yeah. that And you know, they got out of that neighborhood. They now, uh, you know, her parents now own a home in a, uh, like a nicer part of LA. It's more towards like San Bernardino. Nice. I forgot where it is, but they told me, and now I forgot. But, you know, it's a nice part of town. Uh, Sophia now, you know, successful, professional, does great. So it's it's cool to see, you know, like, it's a good reminder that, you know, you can overcome things. It's it's important to work hard, and it's important to not let, you know, like, sometimes stuff happens that's out of your control, but keep working hard, and you can overcome, you know, terrible things that happen. And even overcome some injustices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and don't work at shady hotels. Jeez. <laughs> and for uh, anyone else out there who's near Mark, if you have some kind of connection to a serial killer, could you uh, let us know immediately? <laughs> what? If I start seeing a pattern around this motherfucker, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking Uncle Boris's advice. <laughs> Run. I am Uncle Boris. You can trust me. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that uh, is crazy. It really makes yeah. you feel like, is it getting that bad? <laughs> is it getting that bad? Like to where I just run into people and just head close and get like, are there statistics on this? Am I running into a serial killer like every other day? Like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm about to move back to the hood. I feel like safer down there. <laughs> that was just so much more honest and real. Yeah. It's like when you get further away, people get faker and faker to where everybody looks like they're just pushing a lawnmower, smiling, and their wives are in a little dress with a belt. And like, that's where the weirdest shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Well, as far as I know, I don't know anybody else who knows a serial killer. I've never personally had an encounter with a serial killer, so. It was just one of those weird coincidences of just like some shocking revelation. And then you realize the world is pretty small. Yeah, there's 7 billion people on this world, but everyone's interconnected somehow. And eventually you might run into somebody that knows somebody, you know, that you've heard a crazy story about or whatever. Or they may be famous or whatever. So, you know, it's just, you know, the world seems big, but sometimes it's not. Yeah, especially that when your ex-wife moves across country. Still runs into some chick you fucked. God. <laughs> what are the odds of that? Or a pop lady shows up at your house. Exactly. Oh, yeah, man. 
Fucking, your sins will find you out. <laughs> but yeah, I guess we're all interconnected. Damn it. Yeah. It's like you ever have that where you like see somebody that somewhere where you're not used to seeing them. And mm-hmm. then it like, it fucks you up. Yeah. Like sometimes it's like somebody I know and like I'll be in the sh- shopping. I have a bunch of sh- embarrassing shit in my cart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look like it got metal problems and a panty fetish. <laughs> like, uh, oh, what do you have to try to stand over the cart and shit? <laughs> oh my god! So that's I feel like that. Like, what? What if someone I know is? And I'd be like, uh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I need to get some more honest friends. Yes, more honest friends. Everyone's too fake. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, like speaking along that line, sometimes I like I've considered. I'm like, that's probably why I only have a few <laughs> like, really good friends because I don't like fake people. Yeah, I don't like fake people. Like any any type of fakeness, I just you can kind of sniff it out. And I'm just like, I don't stand for that. Like, don't fake to my face. Be you. And if you're a decent person, we can hang out. If you're good to me, we can hang out. I'll be good to you. But if you're fake, that's just that's. Being fake is more annoying and more of like a turnoff in like a court and like the aspect of friendship than like someone just being a straight jerk. So like you can just be real with me. I can be real with you. Yeah, I quit being a jerk a long time ago because I realized being honest is even more annoying. <laughs> <laughs> How do I look today, honey? It looks like shit. Uh, I don't know <laughs> what you were thinking when you walked. You picked that outfit out, but you need to turn right back around and change that shit. Yeah. And then I'm like, is that me being a jerk or is that me being honest? <laughs> I'm well, like, maybe both. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, wipe your tears. Come here and put this on. <laughs> uh, that's funny, man. I do dress my wife. Like, I swear to God. I don't, if she comes out to come out of the house and do some weird shit on, I'm like, no, what the hell? <laughs> I've seen how she dresses. Yeah. Like, what are you wearing? I'm like, <laughs> are you wearing Ugg boots, sweats, and a tank top? oh i love her though but damn (laughs) yeah i don't know how i got off on that neither do i (laughs) i think it's just uh oh the comedian last night tell him what happened oh yeah so last night uh went to uh the funniest common in texas funniest comic in texas Uh, it's a competition for uh texas comedians and Sandra D, who was on a couple episodes ago, the comedian we had on, the very, very funny Sandra D. Uh, I invited Tamika and Lenny, previous uh, guests here on the show. They went with me to support her, and uh, she was one of 12 comics. They, it's going through several rounds right now, and Sandra completely crushed it, was the funniest comic there. And I'm, I'm not saying that to disparage any other comics there. There was a lot of other really good comics there, and I talked with a couple of them after the show, and they're going to come on the podcast uh, sometime in the future um it's just sandra just was on fire oh and man she's real as shit I, she's, she's yeah. a beautiful person man she was she was on fire she was happy to see me she was like please tell what she crushed it she won and she's on to the semi-final round <coughs> and uh i gotta find out when that is so i can go support her for that because she just did really really good there was a lot of other people there who did really good too just gotta say that again but I'm glad. Really cool I'm glad that she remembered us. <laughs> oh yeah, she was like, "Hey, Mark," and she's like telling all her friends, you know, "This is Mark, the guy I was on the podcast with." And 
I was like, she's here. Come take a picture with me afterwards. And so it was really cool. She was, it was really good to see her again. And so now I'm like, you know, I got to see more. And then she saw me talking to a couple of the other comedians. She's like, good. You're out here getting more comedians for your show. Keep on doing that. So she won the competition, didn't she? Not, she made it to the next round. So she won that night. She won that night. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So next is like the semifinals. And then I guess it would be the finals after that. So I got to keep a, uh, got to keep in the loop and i gotta keep going to that tickets were only five bucks you know i'm so jealous yeah it was great too and the club they do it at is great it's nice it's big they got good food you know nice friendly staff it's a great place so uh when whenever that next day uh, round happens i'm sure i'll be going back out to that trying to bring more people there yeah you'll have to let the listeners know what the date is when you do yeah, I'll look that up and find that out and get that out the next time we record for, you know, the Houston listeners. But unless Juan has anything else, I, uh, that's it for today. We uh, got through the very disturbing life of Richard Ramirez and then the previously unknown story about my friend who family had a encounter with him, which... Kind of brought it too close to home. <laughs> but, you know, thankful that her and her family are safe and, you know, did not wind up another one of his victims because then I never would have got to meet these awesome people. Yeah. Uh, just remember, <coughs> if you immigrate here properly, you could avoid a serial killer and live a great life or end up a lowly podcaster. <laughs> but I'm not dead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, so everybody, uh, thank you for listening. Tune in next week. We'll have something else for you. Yeah, we got more stories of like, you know, we're going to keep it coming. We got more comedians coming on in the future. We're going to have more interviews with musicians. We're probably going to get Jay Flex back on here again. We'll get, you know, more stories and more history and stuff like we did today. Just bringing you cool stuff and, you know, more silver linings and more jokes. So on that note, Seahawks Predator out. Goodbye. If I start seeing a pattern around this motherfucker, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>